morning. Thank you. Well, good morning. I, uh, this is the first time I've had the privilege of being uh, in this sanctuary in person, but I've joined you uh, countless times uh, online, and uh, I can't uh, tell you how often I have uh, just tuned in and been impacted by uh, Dr. Youssef's preaching and feel like uh, I've gotten to join you on a Sunday morning, you know, when I've watched live. Also, uh, my, my best friend is, is on the worship team here. Mac Powell uh, is, uh, is just a dear, dear friend of mine. And so I know he's out of town today. I think he's on tour. This is the last day of his tour before he's back. But uh, it was great to see Scout, his daughter, leading as a worship team, uh, as a part of the worship team as well. But I love your church. Dr. Youssef is such a hero to me. And I know that guests come here often and say that. But um, I just am grateful for a congregation and a church that uh, knew that when God planted this church, that he had more than just Atlanta in mind. He had the nations in mind. And I can just tell you uh, in person that um, you've had a tremendous impact in my own faith. And so I'm thankful for Dr. Youssef's faithfulness. I'm thankful for this church that uh, loves him enough to say, oh, good, uh, he's out of town today. And that means we're going to have lesser preaching, but that means Sydney's better off for it. You know, Australia's better off for it. So thank you uh, for your kingdom mindset. And so God gets all the glory, but can we just thank the Lord for Dr. Youssef and you as the local church and just the way that you are. I'm so grateful for you. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you would, get them out uh, this morning. And we're going to look at a promise uh, out of Scripture that is a particular promise in one sense. This is a promise that God makes to the people of Israel. But it's not just a particular promise for a particular people in a particular season. Uh, the principles of this promise can be applied to our lives. And as you read this alongside, um, uh, and, and to, uh, like the person next to you, I, I want you to, if you would, to set your life up against this promise and ask yourself if God has been faithful in delivering the principles of this promise uh, to your life just as much as mine. I look at my life and I can testify that the same God of Israel, the same God that delivered this particular promise to a particular group of people thousands of years ago, has brought it into fruition in my life. And I pray that you're reminded uh, of the same today. So let's look at this uh, together, if we could. God says, I. Let's just stop right there, all right? Let's just stop right there. Um, the I in this passage, the I in Isaiah 41, is, 9, is God. So if you're okay to, to write in your Bible, you have a physical Bible and you can circle, you know, uh, around, you can put the word God on top of that. And just know that God is the one making this promise. Now, the reason that's important is because um, the source of a promise gives you the power of the promise, if, if we're going through a recession in the next couple of years and, and uh, you're losing a lot of your 401k in the next couple of years, I've lost about 20% of mine, all right? This, it hasn't been a healthy year, all right, when it comes to the stock market. And I walk off stage here in a minute and I say to you, hey, you can line up if you want. I got my checkbook this morning and you can tell me what you've lost in the last quarter and I'll make good for it. And I'll just get out my checkbook and write checks for you. I'm making financial promises with each check. But can I just tell you something? You're in a lot of trouble. Because I can write a check, but it's going to bounce, baby. Can I just tell you right now? The source of the promise is the power of the promise. If I say to you that uh, your team is going to win, 
you're better off if you're a Georgia fan. Even Georgia Tech, by the way, won this weekend. That's an awesome thing. But, but the source of that promise, right, is not guaranteed. You don't know what's going to happen once they actually show up to play the game on a Saturday. But, but has it ever occurred to you that God never has something occur to him? God never makes a promise and then says, oh, when I made that promise about your security, I didn't know that a pandemic was about to play out. God doesn't make a promise and say, I'm, I'm making you this promise, but that's before the circumstances in front of us started to unravel. When God makes a promise, he bats a thousand. He never makes a promise that later on doesn't come into fruition. And so I, I just want us to lean in here because the source of this promise is God himself. Some of us have been made promises before by well-intended people. The doctor said, hey, I think we got it all. The cancer's never going to come back again. And that was a well-intended promise, but the cancer's back. Hey, listen, I love you and your mom. I'm never going to, we're going through a tough spell. I'm never going to leave you and your mom. And then today, the marriage is unraveled and it's gone. So all of us have been made promises to before that maybe even well-intended didn't come about. But just know that this is God making the promise. He's never made one. That has not come about. And so we can count on him. And God is the one making this promise. God says, I. And that's the person making the promise. And God says, I took you. I took you from the ends of the earth and from his farthest corners. God says, I called you. And then he says, and I have chosen you. And I, I'm sorry, I've called you. And I said, you are my servant and I have chosen you, and I've not rejected you. And so in verse 9, he makes this promise. And so based on this promise, platformed out of this promise, comes this demand. And he says, and if you believe verse 9 to be true, then let verse 10 play out in your life. And he says, here it is. Here's the command. So do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Why? Because I am with you. Do not be dismayed. Why? Because I am your God. And then... He goes back to making a promise, and it's an incredible promise. Can I just ask you before we read it, anybody here need strength today? <laughs> I sure need strength. I don't know about you, but there's not an avenue in my life where I don't need strength. If my wife was here, she'd say amen really loud to that because she'd say he needs strength in his marriage. He needs strength to be the husband he's called to be. If my kids were here, they'd say he needs strength to be the dad he needs to be. If the people that I run, the nonprofit that I get to be a part of, you know, in my day-to-day -day job that focuses on foster kids were here, my staff would tell you he needs strength to lead us through this season, you know, as, as a ministry. And in every aspect of my life, if Mac Powell was here, he'd amen really loud and say, as a friend, that man needs a lot of strength and that man needs a lot of help. And the beauty is that God sets to a bunch of people that are listening this morning who say we need strength, I will strengthen you. I will strengthen you. And then he says, and I will help you. Anybody need help? I need help getting out of bed sometimes, y'all. <laughs> and God says, I will strengthen you and I will help you. And then he says, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I don't know about you, but I see the principles of this promise and I can say yes and amen. If you had told me when I was nine years old that I would be in a church on a Sunday morning preaching about the promises of God 
and reminding people that they're held in his righteous right hand, I would have laughed at you because when I was nine years old, the last thing I thought was that God is a loving God who's holding me in his righteous right hand. God is a loving God who's helping me. And God is a loving God who's strengthening me. When I was nine years old, my family and I went to the Iranian Revolution, like Dr. Youssef said. And I'll never forget as a little kid watching that play out. And in my mind, as a little nine-year-old boy thinking that that was actually God hurting me and not God holding me. I'll never forget the first week of the Iranian Revolution going to a school assembly in the army base that I grew up in. My dad was high-ranked in the military, and so me and all my classmates went to this little army school in our army base. And when the Iranian Revolution happened, when the Ayatollah Khomeini and his religious took over, I remember forget the government was overthrown. And that very first week, they called all of us, every student, to the back of the school for an assembly. We stood there, and a soldier came and stood in front of our entire school and read the name of three students, mind me, and the first one that he read out, and asked us to make our way to the front. And I'll never forget making my way to the front and this soldier dropping the piece of paper, taking a gun out of a holster, and with his hands shaking, putting it in my head and saying, I've been called, ordered to come here and take your life. And I'll never forget the school principal getting between me and the gun and just begging him to come back another time. He looked scared enough to actually use it. And I went home that day and I told my dad what had happened. And my father, who was a military man, a tough man, a rugged man, sat down and, and he put me on his lap and started to cry. And he said, son, don't worry. The guy with the gun's not going to get you. They're actually coming after me. They're trying to make an example out of our family as they're overthrowing the government and using fear as their weapon. But he said, son, when they come back for you, they're not going to find you because you're not going back to school. And I remember in those next few weeks being at home and not going to school and, and thinking what was happening is it's just something that is really literally unpacking every security that we had in our life. And in my mind as a little boy, seeing that be a bunch of religious people that had taken over, thinking that was God. To me, God wasn't helping us. God was disrupting everything that was secure in our lives. About two weeks into it, as my mom and dad were planning to kind of find security for our families, planning to escape before they could even play out the plan, I'll never forget soldiers coming to our home. And soldiers dragging my dad out of our home. And as they were dragging my dad out of our home, my mom was hanging on to the leg of one of the soldiers. And she just kept screaming, just kill him quickly, just kill him quickly. And when you're nine years old, you don't understand why your mom is begging soldiers to kill your father quickly. They took my dad out of the house and my mom grabbed my sister's hand and grabbed my hand and said, let's pray. And that's my first memory of prayer. And I'll never forget, she was just praying and she said in her prayer, just let him die quickly. And when the prayer was over, I remember asking my mom, why are you saying that? And she said, they're taking your dad right now to the same park that they took his best friend yesterday. And his best friend yesterday was tied to a tree. They took a pair of pliers and started with his nails and worked their way in. It took him about seven hours to torture him. And we need to pray to God that he will be killed quickly. He'll be spared torture. And when you're nine years old and you're praying that, and the last thing you're thinking is that God is a God who will hold you and strengthen you and help you. I remember thinking, God, I don't know what we've done to make you so mad, but you're coming after us. And the last thing we wanted to do was to look to him. But that day my dad came home and the soldiers didn't get him. And he said, they've given me a few more weeks. And when they come back for our family, we can't be here. We've got to get out of here as fast as we can. They started to plan their escape. And I'll never forget my mom and dad huddled in the corner and us just waiting on them to, to execute some kind of a plan. And then eventually my dad went to these doctors that my mom had been going to see for these heart issues that she began to have. And they brokered a deal 
And eventually, one afternoon, all of it was fabricated. My mom just acted like her heart was really bothering her. And they called and had an ambulance came to get her. The ambulance took her back to the hospital and our family followed and they took my mom in this back room and they came out and said that she needed bypass surgery even though she didn't really need it and that she should be taken immediately to Switzerland as fast as possible so that she can have this surgery. And we called for homework assignments as a family, like we were going and coming back. And we got a house sitter, like we were going and coming back. And we bought two-way airline tickets, like we were going and coming back. Well, we weren't coming back. We are running for our lives. And I will never forget, as a little kid, thinking about all of this plan being nothing more than an orchestrated way to get as fast as we can, as far as we can, away from God. And I never forget holding my dad's hand in that Iranian airport. And his hand just kept shaking and he kept saying to my mom, as we were going to the airport to to get on a plane and go to Switzerland for this operation, if they find out, they're going to kill us right here on the spot. But they didn't. Because when you look at your life, you realize how even when sometimes you think God is the one actually hurting you, he's actually the one holding you. And God held us that day. And we got on the plane and we went up in the air and a couple hours later we landed in Switzerland and instead of going to have the surgery, we went immediately to the American consulate. We pled for our lives. My mom and dad went into the American embassy and they said, look, we want to become refugees. We need, the fancy word for it was political asylum. And the revolutions happened and our family's life is in danger and, and people have threatened to kill my children and they've come after me. And, and my dad pled. He said, can we, can we become refugees in America? And at that time, nobody was allowing Iranians into America because the Iranian revolution was happening. And I remember being stuck in Europe for nine months. For nine months while 54 Americans were held hostage in the American embassy in Iran. We watched every day how Iran became front and center, the enemy of America on paper, while we as a refugee family were just trying to get here as fast as we could. And honestly, we tried every way we could. We tried legally, we tried illegally, we tried every way we could, and we just kept hitting the wall, kept hitting the wall, until one day, my mom got us together with what she called her American idea. She said, look, we want to go to America, and uh, she showed us this picture. She said, "Uh, do you guys know who this is? And it was this, like, handsome, bearded, you know, white-looking individual. And she said, "Uh, I don't know if you've ever known this man. And we said, no. And she said, this is Jesus Christ, and uh, he's an American, and we need to ask him (laughs) to let us into his country. And I know this is the South, and so some of y'all are hearing me this, and some of you are laughing, but some of you are not laughing. Some of you are like, why is everyone laughing? Some of y'all think Jesus was literally a white Republican who's always on Hannity at nine. But I just want you to know Jesus looked in real person more camel dynasty than duck dynasty. All right, he looked... He looked a lot like Dr. Youssef, all right, more than he looked, you know, like Jim Caviezel. Anyway, so uh, my mom... My mom looks, she shows us this picture, and she says, uh, this is Jesus, and he's American, and uh, she said, he's the American God, and we've been praying to the wrong God, and we need to ask him to let us into his country. And I know that's bad theology, but isn't God bigger than bad theology? And I just remember holding hands, and my mom saying something out loud, like, Jesus, please let us into your country. And I'm just telling you, a week after we mentioned the name of Jesus in a prayer, the doors miraculously opened up, and we were coming to America. And I remember... I remember flying to America and thinking, I hate religion because it destroyed my country. But hey, Jesus, thanks for letting us into your country. (laughs) And we land in Texas, y'all. 
My mom and dad chose Texas, not just Texas. I don't know if you know Texans. They're like the most patriotic people in the world. All right, so we didn't just land in Texas. We moved to Colleen, Texas, where Fort Hood is, where the largest army base in the world is. So can you imagine patriotic Texas slash American military town? I mean, can you just say wedgie waiting to happen? I mean, we moved right in during the Iranian situation. And I'm just telling you, in the middle of all of this, we parachute in, and I've got the wrong haircut, the wrong clothes, the wrong language, the wrong everything. And I walk right into the American elementary school, and I'm like, hello, I am David. And they're like, you are so going to get beat up today after school. <laughs> and that was me. I've heard every nickname, every 7-Eleven joke, every turban joke. I got called bean dip, and I'm not even Mexican. I was like, you're not even accurate in your racism. You know, we just came halfway. Honestly, uh, across the world to, in all sincerity, like unplug from one kind of terrorism, physical, and plug into a whole other kind, emotional. And for years and years, that was me. For years and years, I was the kid that every day sat by himself and ate his lunch alone. I was the kid that just couldn't find any friends, couldn't get any traction and just finding anybody to just welcome me in. And I just remember thinking, if this is what being a refugee is all about, it sure doesn't feel like this is a safe place, a refuge for me. And that was me until the day my freshman year in high school was about to start. I'll never forget, I was sitting in my room and I was crying. And it was the last day of the summer and my freshman year was about to get going. And so my dad heard me and he came in and he said, what's wrong? And I told him, I said, Dad, it's not going well for me here. I know things are going better for you, but, um, but it's, I'm just having a really hard time acclimating. And I said, you know, I don't want to go to high school tomorrow. High school just means bigger levels of persecution and, and, and getting bullied. And, and I told him all the reasons I didn't want school to start the next day and how I just didn't blend in and things weren't playing out. And, and my dad felt sorry for me. So he put me in the car and he drove me to the mall. And trying to fix it, that afternoon he got me new clothes, new haircut, new shoes, new everything. And I went the next day to school, same insecure kid on the inside, completely made over on the outside. And instantly I went from like geek to chic, baby, overnight. I mean, I'm telling you, <laughs> I went to school and I went from like Abdul to Julio, baby. I'm just telling you, like, <laughs> I found out what you know. You don't have to be from Iran to know this. I found out that... Uh, if you'll just wear the right label, or if you just learn how to play high school, people will receive you even though it might be fabricated relationships. And I just learned how to play that game in high school. I went from the kid nobody wanted to hang out with to learning how to end up at the right lunchroom table, how to, how to break up with the right girl right before she could break up with me, how to be cold to, be people, to people to be perceived cool to people. And at least when I was a nobody, I was David Nasser the nobody, but I'd completely sold my soul. You know where it says in the Bible, what good is it for a man to, to forfeit his soul in order to gain the whole world? That was me. But I was just tired of being alone. And honestly, I just conformed. I, I love that passage in Scripture where it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But that's really easy to say when you're a believer and you have identity in something bigger than the patterns of this world. But when you're just alone, you're already deviating every single day. You just want to blend in. You just want to be a part of a crowd if that just means that the crowd will receive you. And my high school years became these years where I just did everything I could just to not be alone. And on paper, everything seemed to be going better. On paper, it seemed like high school was better. But honestly, I completely sold my identity. And I barely, barely, barely graduated from high school. And a couple of months after high school, about two months after high school, one night I'm in the car 
with the only buddy I had who had not left for college yet. And to be very honest, we were in front of my house one night, and um, it's almost midnight, it's like five minutes before midnight, and we're trying to finish up this joint, this like marijuana joint together real quick before I go inside. And, and as we're passing it back and forth, my buddy looks over at me and he goes, man, why are you so down tonight? And I, and I told him, I said, man, um, we hugged like nine people goodbye tonight who were going off to this college and this college and this college. And we'd built this whole thing up at high school. And it, also, it all went away as soon as we got our cap and gown. And we've got nowhere to be popular anymore, nowhere to be accepted anymore. And, and my buddy looks over at me and he goes, well, I've got an idea. He goes, uh, you know, in America, outside of the high school for teenagers, the next big social ground where you can kind of like go find, you know, friends is church, is a youth group. He goes, you ought to come to church with me tomorrow. And I'm surprised he's inviting me to church because he's literally handing me a joint while he's inviting me to church. He's like, you ought to come to church with me tomorrow. And I'm like, you go to church? And he's like, I'm a Southern Baptist. That's literally what he said. And I know it says in the Bible in Genesis that God made the grass and it was good, but that's not what it means, y'all. You know, so I'm kind of confused. So anyway, so... So he's inviting me to church, and, and I said, are you serious? And he said, yeah. And he goes, man, uh, you know, I go to church. He goes, tomorrow morning, there'll be all these people from our church, and, and you ought to come with me. And, and, and I looked at him, and I said, I'm not going to church. And he said, why? And I told him, I said, man, I hate religion. He said, what do you mean? I said, man, when I was a kid, I saw religion destroy my country. I said, man, I, I want to have nothing to do with religion. Plus, if I had a religion, it's kind of like Muslim, Islam. You know, I'm, I'm more like from that heritage. And, and my buddy looks at me and he goes, no, 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 no. He goes, listen, I'm not, you don't have to change a thing about your life to belong to church. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, man, I don't think my dad's going to let me go. And he said, well, why don't you just ask him? So on a, on a Saturday night, I'm, I'm in this car and... And I'm telling my friend all the reasons I didn't, I didn't want to go to church. And, and then he tried one last thing. He named the five prettiest girls from my high school. And he told me that they all went to his church. And instantly I felt motivated to visit. <laughs> and I told him, I said, man, you, you've motivated me. But I, I said, but the problem is going to be my dad. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, my father is actually a little bit more devout than I am, uh, you know, as a Muslim, and I said, and, and there's no hiding it. Like, if I get up on a Sunday morning and put on nice clothes and, and go out of the house, he's going to know that I'm probably going to a Christian church. And I said, there's no way he's going to let me go. And he said, well, why don't you ask him? And so on a Saturday night, knowing my father was going to say no, just to get my buddy off my back, I walked in the house, and my buddy walked up to the front door and stood at the front door to make sure I was going to ask him. And I walked down the hallway, and I knocked on my parents' bedroom door, and I said, Mom and Dad, I'm sorry to wake you up. Don't get out of bed. I said, I'm going to ask you a question. Just say no really loud so my friend can hear. I said, if he wants to know if tomorrow morning I can go with him to a Christian church. But instead of saying no, my dad's quiet in his bed for a second. And then he yells really loud. What is the name of it? And I have no idea what's happening, but he's asking the name of the church. Well, I didn't know the name of the church. So I looked down the hallway to my friend who's standing at the door, stoned out of his mind. And he yells really loud shades and as soon as he said shades my dad heard it and my dad goes I know those people and let me tell you what was happening what I didn't know was that about two weeks before that Saturday night when I was asking my parents if I could go to church thinking he was going to say no that there were these people from this church shades mountain baptist who had shown up at my dad's restaurant my dad had opened up a french restaurant I know it's confusing but stay with me all right my dad <laughs> had opened up this restaurant and about two weeks before that Saturday night, 
my dad one day was really, really shorthanded on waitstaff, and he was just crazy at lunch, and there was this group of men who had shown up to eat at his restaurant, and we're talking about Aubrey Edwards, who was the worship pastor of this church, and some of the other folks from this church, and they'd seen how he was shorthanded on waitstaff, and instead of complaining about the bad service, they'd quietly gotten up, rolled up their sleeves, and waited on tables at my dad's restaurant. Then they went back the next day to help him again. Then they began a relationship with my dad. And then Aubrey Edwards had invited my dad to choir practice. And my dad, who doesn't care about choir practice because they were kind, showed up to choir practice. And at the end of choir practice, Aubrey Edwards got out a piece of paper and said, this is my new friend, Mr. Nasser. I told him our choir would love to help volunteer at the restaurant. And so for two weeks, these Christians had shown up and were busboys and waiters at my dad's restaurant. And God in his sovereignty had used that to massage my dad's heart. So fast forward two weeks later, I don't know any of this is going on. I'm standing in front of his bedroom. I go, can I go to church? And instead of saying no, he goes, what is the name of it? And then out of 1,100 churches in this like buckle of the Bible, Bible belt, you know, town, my dad hears the name of the exact same church as the people that had helped him out. God's righteous right hand at work. And so on a Saturday night, my dad goes, I know those people. And then he finishes the sentence, you can go there, but only there. The reason I'm telling you this is because my testimony is not about some Iranian kid that turned out okay. It's about a church that showed up. It's about a bunch of believers who were believable. A bunch of Christians who were Christ-like. And so on a Sunday morning, I got to get up put on my chinos, and go to church. And I'll never forget, I walk in this church, and as soon as I walk in this church, I see all these people I used to party with, and so I walk up to them, and we're at this youth rally, and every other word out of my mouth is a cuss word, because that's how we are outside the church, except in the church, they're all acting very differently. They're all saying, bless you, nobody's sneezing. It's just kind of weird. And within five minutes, I'm sitting there, and I look, and all of a sudden, this guy named Larry No is sitting beside me. And he was so nice to me. He was so gracious. He opened up his Bible and put it on the right page just so I wouldn't feel left out during the Sunday school lesson. And when the Sunday school lesson was over, Larry looked over at me and he goes, I'm so glad you're here. This is amazing that God has you here. And he invited me to come back the next night. But I was full of pride and I told him no. And on my way out, he did say, we'll come see you. And what I didn't know was that they had this thing called visitation. <laughs> Lost people call it harassment. And on that next night, on that Monday night, 17 Christian teenagers showed up at my house. And they knocked on the door and said, can we come in for a few minutes? And they lied because three hours later they were still at my house. <laughs> and they were meticulously and slowly going through every bead in a beaded bracelet that they had as they explained the Roman road to me. And they told me that I was a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ had come and lived a perfect life and then died a sinner's death. And that he had died on my behalf. And by accepting what he did on the cross, I could find forgiveness and peace. And when they got done with their pitch, and it was a good one, and they said, David, are you ready to give your life to Jesus? I looked at him and I said, I'm sure he loves you. You look like really good religious people, but you don't know how bad I've been. And they said, no, David, he loves you. And eventually I showed them the door. And on their way out, one of them did say, see you next, next week. And I had no idea what they meant. But I'm just telling you, for the next eight Monday nights in a row, these Christians showed up at my house. At 6 p.m. We were the Iranians, but we were getting terrorized by a youth group, y'all. <laughs> and every Monday, we're like, hi, the Christians are coming. The Christians are coming. And they would come in. And every week, it would be a different Bible verse, but the same message. 
One week it would be John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that if you believe in him, you will not perish but have eternal life. The next week they'd come in, recalibrate. It would be Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. The next week they'd come in and go, you know, he who knew no sin became sin so that you could be the righteousness of God. But every single week it would be different Bible verses but the same exact message that God loved me just the way that I was but he loved me too much to leave me that way. And I kept saying to them, I'm not interested in religion. I hate religion. I saw it destroy my country. And they kept responding, we hate religion too. This isn't about religion. As a matter of fact, the thing getting in the way here is religion. Listen, we're not interested in making you religious. We're interested in making you his. It's not about religion. It's about redemption. And can I just tell you, for eight weeks, on a Monday night, they would show up and share the gospel with me. And on Sundays, they would drive over and they would drag me to church. And I say drag me, but I wanted to go. And one night I was at their church and the preacher was preaching on a Sunday night. And, and he was an old school preacher, you know. And he was preaching and he gave this invitation at the end of the sermon. And he said, and if you have never given your life to Christ, I, I want you to have the courage to step out of your pew, step out of your chair and come to the front. And, and I'll never forget as people were coming to the front and people were giving their life to Christ. I just remember feeling something. I, I now know it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but when you're lost, you don't think of it that way. And I remember thinking to myself, these Christians are starting to get to me. I got I to gotta stop this. This is starting to like feel really heavy. And during the invitation, while other people were hitting the aisle and coming forward, I remember thinking, all right, that's it. I got to let them know. I'm going to call somebody. I'm going to get out of here right now. And I'm going to call somebody and say, do not come to my house on Monday. I'm not coming anymore. And I decided I was done that night. And I remember forget, I got in the aisle and I went as fast as I could to the parking lot, got in my car and I drove home. And when I got home, I realized that God's not contained in buildings with steeples. He's everywhere. It's like the psalmist says, you know, in Psalm 139, where can I go from your presence, O Lord? And I walked in the house and as soon as I walked in, I'll never forget the power of the, of the presence of God was just so thick in my house. My parents were out of town that night and I walked in and I just sat there for the next two hours. I just struggled with this idea that these people were actually loving and they were consistent in the way they displayed the gospel. And I'll never forget just finally coming to the end of myself and realizing they're not looking for religion in me. They're looking for restoration and redemption and it had to come from repentance. So I knew all the fancy words, redemption, sanctification, anything that ends with a T-I-O-N, because I kept teaching them to me, but I didn't use any of them. I just hit one knee and I said, Jesus, I know you're real. I want you to be real in me. I know you're God. I, I want you to be my God. I know I need a Savior. I don't deserve you as my Savior, but I want you to be my Savior. And I love what Paul says, you know, in Galatians 2.20 where he says, uh, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live, I live by faith, not by religion, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, ditto. Because that night, the old me died and a whole new me was born again. A couple hours later, my dad, my mom, they came home. They were out of town that night. And when they came home, I told them what was happening. I told them how I, they'd become a Christian and how I'd given my life over to Jesus. And my parents were never really that devout as Muslims until that night. <laughs> All of a sudden, my father was like, you cannot be a Christian, we're Muslims. I was like, we are? <laughs> and the night that I went to get baptized at the church that I became a Christian at was the night that everything just kind of came to a head. I'll never forget, I went and got baptized and I came home and my dad had a backpack packed and he, he told me that I was no longer his son and I, I brought shame to the family by doing that and I, 
got kicked out of the house. And I moved in with six guys that lived in a one-bedroom apartment. And I'll never forget, I was so broke, but I'd never been more rich. I'd never had more peace. I'd lost everything on paper, but I'd finally, like, life finally made sense. And five months after I was a Christian, one night my sister called me and through Campus Crusade on her campus at the University of Montemello, my sister had come to know Christ. And five months after that, my mom, my mom who was there the night that my dad kicked me out of the house calls me really loud on the phone. She goes, tonight I become Christian. I'm like, why are you yelling, mom? She goes, I want your father to hear because he's not kicking me nowhere. That's how she became a Christian. My mom became a Christian. Then five months after that, my brother Benjamin, who's Down syndrome, fearfully and wonderfully, man, God saved my brother. And I thought, God's on like this five-month clock in saving Nassers. And five months later past that, my dad did not get saved. Five months later past that, my dad did not become a Christian. And it wasn't because of lack of trying. My mom was putting Bible verses in his food, in his Rogaine, everything, y'all. <laughs> and for two and a half years, for two and a half years, we shared the gospel. We tried to talk to my dad about God and he never would pay attention until one day my mom had to go in for open heart surgery. And God used that to finally just bring humility to my dad. And my dad hit one knee and I, he asked Jesus to come into his life. And people always hear my story and they always go, boy, it must have been tough for the Iranians to come to Jesus. And I always go, not half as tough as it is all to, in comparison to all the church people I get to preach to on Sunday mornings. You know? People always hear my story and they go, boy, that's, that's a crazy story of how God like saved your family. And I, I think it is, but not half as tough as it is, not just to the black and white situation that I went through, but the shades of gray that I get to preach to so often. Honestly. My wife was that way, y'all. My wife grew up in the church, in a really, really good church like this church, you know, with a godly pastor conservative church, loved the word, loved missions, loved. My wife grew up, she was on the pastor search committee. My wife, Jennifer, she grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. You don't get more southern than that, you know. And, and she, went to, she went to Northport Baptist. She was on the pastor search committee when she was 16. Everybody else was like 50 and 70. She was the 16-year-old on the pastor search committee. My wife was Bible drill champion for the state of Alabama four years in a row. I've seen the ribbons. That's back when, like, you actually earned ribbons. Everybody just didn't get ribbons, all right? She earned her <laughs> Bible drill champion. My wife was a counselor at a crusade at the Bama Theater in Tuscaloosa. She wasn't just a counselor. She was leading the counseling. She had the number two pencils, the, the, the breath mints in her hand to like hand to the counselors for counselor training for a crusade. And as a counselor at the event, during the invitation, this guy shares the gospel, this preacher. And, and she, during the invitation, she comes to the front. And when she comes to the front, she hands all the stuff over to her youth pastor and says, hey, I don't need to be a counselor right now. I need to give my life to Christ right now. And her youth pastor looked at her and said, what are you talking about? You're the leader of the youth group. And she said, you're right, I'm the leader of the youth group, but it's always been about doing, it's never been about being. And my wife gave her life to Christ when she was 18. It's crazy. She got saved when she was 18, I got saved when I was 18. And people always hear our stories and they go, boy, it must have been tough. Be the I always go, this is the tougher one. Becoming a Christian out of rebellion is one thing. Becoming a Christian out of churchianity is another People always hear my story and they will go, boy, it must have been tough. And I always go, not half as tough as it is for good people who come to the end of themselves because they realize Christianity is not about bad people becoming good people. It's about dead people becoming alive. And has that ever happened? Has that ever happened? 
And honestly, I just find it very ironic that God would send a missionary from the 1040 window to the south to remind people that religion will not find you whole. Only redemption can. And his name is Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life is not a theology, it's a person. And his name is Jesus. Amen? And can we pray together just where we are? And can I just ask you a really simple question this morning? The question is not do you go to church. You go to church. That's why you're here. You're watching online. You're joining us. You're not hostile to the gospel. That's why you're a part of this right now. The question is not do you pray. The question is not do you go to church. The question is not even do you have a relationship with Jesus. Everyone has a relationship with Jesus. The question is what kind of relationship is it? Is he your Lord? Is he your Savior? And if he's never been, could it be that long before the foundation of the earth, God had predestined this moment to wake you to the, to the need that you have for a Savior? If you're hanging on to how bad you've been, I, I know what that's like. I kept hanging on to how bad I've been, all the mistakes I've made, all the failures in my life. But I just want you to know you'll never be too bad for the reach of God. But if you're hanging on to how good you've been, all the merit badges of your attendance and your tithe and your, your singing and all your efforts, I want you to know you'll never be too bad, but you'll also never be too good. We come to the foot of the cross the same, on even ground saying, Jesus, we can't, but you did. And we give our lives over to you. If you've never given your life to him, it might be that God at this moment is calling you home. This is God's homecoming for you. But maybe today you're hearing me and you're saying, David, I, I know him. I know him. But as I, as I hear your story, I'm reminded of the hour I first believed. I'm reminded of the moment when God stepped out of heaven and stepped into my life and saved me. As I hear your testimony, I'm reminded of the power of the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Same hero in your story is the same hero in mine. And isn't it interesting that, that your heart pounds harder for God when you're reminded of what he's done in my life when I share my story? And you've been given one to share next Tuesday at work. You've been given a power to speak into your neighbors, the David Nassers in your neighborhood, just as much as anybody else. And so, Lord, we thank you for this moment you've given us. We look to you, God, as the one who helps us and, and holds us. And I even this morning pray, Father, for the one who hears the story and is reminded that um, in seasons when we feel like you're maybe the one hurting, you're actually the one holding. The one who's abandoned, you're actually the one who um, has been the one serving God in a way that through the orchestrated circumstances of our life have shown up here. God, I pray for anyone who's hearing me this morning who closes their eyes right now and prays more to a black void than a Christ that they know intimately, that they would, they would just not want to take one more breath without saying it's time to come home. I pray for those who know you, God, but are prodigal and far away, that today you would draw them near. Thank you, God, for your kindness and your mercy and your goodness in our life. We pray this in your name.